If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm the editor of the magazine, Dave Musgrove, and this is the third of our February 2012 editions. Don't forget that BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and you can subscribe. Our website is historyextra.com and we're on Twitter, twitter.com slash historyextra and facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up. Here is Gandhi saying he's acquiescing really in what happens next. And that is a hugely important moment encapsulated on really unprepossessing materials, literally backs of envelopes. That was Professor Chris Woolgar on some notable gems in the Broadlands archive. One has to emphasise how uh, massive uh, a publishing project, how massive a research enterprise it was. That was Professor Mark Greengrass on Fox's Book of Martyrs. A polite landscape, to my mind, is, is a landscape of uh, pleasure, a landscape of leisure. It's a landscape that, that's designed um, with aesthetics in mind. And that was Dr Oliver Crichton on a polite landscape from the past. I'd just like to mention, before we get started with the interviews, that Beeb's History Magazine is now available on the Kindle. Indeed, our February issue is there right now. You can find out more by searching on Amazon or go to our website, historyextra.com forward slash Kindle for the full lowdown. Thanks for all your comments and feedback on last week's Ask the Historian interview. It was a broadly positive response, so I'll look to see if we can set up any similar discussions in the future. But for now... The University of Southampton has recently completed the acquisition of the Broadlands Archive. That's one of the most significant manuscript collections in the UK. Broadlands is a country house not far from Southampton, which has been home to a number of notables over the centuries, including the Victorian Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, and the 20th century statesman and indeed last Viceroy of India, Lord Mountbatten. The archives feature approximately 250,000 papers and some 50,000 photographs of Earl Mountbatten. They've been described as the foundation archive for the modern states of India and Pakistan. Professor Chris Woolgar is Head of Special Collections and Professor of History and Archival Studies at the University of Southampton, and he introduces us to the collection now. This is a, an archive that has everything, um, everything an archi archivist could want almost, from 
the archives, the papers of a 19th century Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, uh, the third Viscount Palmerston, uh, through to the diary of the 7th Earl of Shaftesbury, the great Victorian philanthropist, which run to something like a million words, uh, through to the papers of Lord and Lady Mountbatten, including really very interesting materials for the independence of India and Pakistan in 1947. And is that unusual to have such a, a diversity of, of records within one archive? It is and it isn't. Uh, there are archives that are composed in a similar sort of way all around the country in record offices. One of the interesting characteristics about this country is that there is a lot of business to do with official life, public life as it were, that's in private possession. And one of the reasons for that is quite simply the way government business has been conducted. If I can take an example, uh, the third Viscount Palmerston was Foreign Secretary for a period of some 15, 16 years in the, the 1830s, 1840s. When a diplomat is appointed to an office, they go out with instructions. And one line in those instructions is, write to me once a week, write to me once a month, whatever it is. And they do, and they now form a long sequence of dispatches which we can find in the National Archives. But you can only put certain things in a dispatch because it can be called for by Parliament. And it's really important that the Foreign Secretary has information about all sorts of other things. So diplomats carry on a second correspondence, a parallel correspondence, very much like the sort of thing that one sees now in the, in the WikiLeaks cables, telling the Foreign Secretary everything that's going on in, in the country concerned. And these stay the, the Foreign Secretary's private property. And when he leaves office, the documents leave office with him as well. So the consequence of that is there are archives all around the country that have really important materials for the study of our national life. So this archive, before it moved to, to, to your university, would have been housed, what, in, in the library of, of Broadlands? It was indeed housed at, at Broadlands, uh, in all sorts of places, I suspect, quite simply because of its bulk. Four and a half thousand boxes equates to about six lorry loads of paper. And you better just tell us what Broadlands is. Broadlands is a country house near Romsey. Uh, it's largely 18th, 19th century uh, landscape model by Capability Brown. Very attractive, but quite modest private residence. It was Lord Palmerston's favourite residence. And he, in fact, consolidated a lot of the, the estate, bought a lot of property running from Romsey down the Test Valley. So there's a lot of material here, too, for the local history of the area. Mm. And, and what happens at that point when you have a, such a, a sizeable archive? You're physically moving it to a new location. What, what are the challenges for an archivist in, in, in managing that process? Well, part of it is the muscular side of history. First of all, clearing out basements, attics, whatever it is, and the logistics of getting material here. But it is then a question of, of sorting out a collection on that scale and describing it so that we have in place the infrastructure for research so that people can physically come and consult things. So there's a lot of sorting that has to go on to group papers together. And what are the main highlights that you've seen in the collection? What are the what are the the, the, the sort of the priceless documents and uh, and images that you've uh, that you've uncovered? 
One of the most interesting sequences, I think, are a set of interviews that Lord Mountbatten uh, carried out as Viceroy. He went out to India in March 1947, charged really with transferring power to the Indian population. Uh, he knew that he had to deal with this comparatively quickly. What he does is he arranges meetings with as many people as he can. And after each meeting, he dictates a record of that meeting. He quite literally has a break of five, ten minutes between meetings. And he goes to a group of secretaries who must have been working day and night. And you have something that's almost like a verbatim record, a, a blow by blow account of the independence of India and Pakistan. And they are really crucial. And do you ever do you ever have sort of wow moments or eureka moments when you're you know you're going through the what's ostensibly the the mundane process of cataloguing and you come across something and you think, blimey, that's that's quite quite astounding. You do, and sometimes they come at the least expected moments, and sometimes they are the most unprepossessing things. There is in this archive a group of five envelopes, by their mail envelopes. Um, and they were written on by Gandhi. And they come from a meeting that he had with Lord Mountbatten on the 2nd or 3rd of June 1947. And what has happened is that Lord Mountbatten has just met with the Indian political leaders and they have decided that India is to be divided and they're going with the plan to do that. Now, immediately after that, Mountbatten had a meeting with Gandhi, and Gandhi had really been very much for a, an undivided India, or at least an India that was not divided by the British. So Mountbatten was really in some trepidation about what this interview might contain, as it were, because Gandhi had the power really to derail the settlement and he was amazed, I think, and relieved when the meeting started and Gandhi didn't say anything. And then he simply got out of his pocket these envelopes and wrote on the back of them, I'm sorry, I cannot speak. When I took the vow of silence on Mondays, I made two exceptions, uh, speaking to high functionaries on important business and to the sick. But I know you don't want me to speak. And he just left the envelopes there for Mount Matter. So really, by this act of self-denial, almost, um, here is Gandhi saying he's acquiescing, really, in what happens next. And that is a hugely important moment encapsulated on really quite unpre unprepossessing materials, literally backs of envelopes. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And I'm writing, I think you've also got, um, uh, going from a, a completely different angle, you've got Mountbatten and, and Charlie Chaplin. There are indeed photographs of Lord Mountbatten and Charlie Chaplin, Louis Mountbatten and his, his wife, on their honeymoon in Hollywood in 1922. They made uh, a short film together, and we do have some stills from that period, yes. So, so it's, you know, you've got stuff which is going to really inform on one of the one of the key figures of the of the twentieth century. There, then. Yes, yes. I mean, there must be something like two hundred and fifty thousand items of paper and fifty thousand photographs in Lord Mountbatten's papers. So it is vast. It goes from his 
from his earliest years, really, um, right the way through to, to his death. But it covers not only India, it covers uh, his time as um, Supreme Ally, Ally Commander in Southeast Asia from 1943 to 1946, to the Second World War, the end of the war and the, uh, and the settlement immediately afterwards. He then returns to naval life and he becomes eventually first sea lord and then chief of defence staff. So very interesting materials there. But also his letters to his mother as a boy. And we have a letter from him as a seven-year-old. And he has gone to Russia uh, to visit his aunt and uncle. And there is one of these letters which starts off uh, from St. Petersburg, it says, uh, Dear Mama, Auntie Alice, met us at the, Auntie Alice met us at the station. And you think, oh yes, this is this is a scenario I remember meeting somebody at the station. But of course, Auntie Alice is the Serena of Russia. And one then realises that something very, very different has happened here. So there are all sorts of perspectives on this. Very good. Uh, in conclusion, you've, you've got a, a, a small exhibition uh, going on to, to, to celebrate the, uh, you know, the archive being being uh, you know finally brought into the uh, into the university. Yes, we have a, a very nice exhibition gallery within special collections, and we have an exhibition on the house at Broadlands, um, a country house in Hampshire largely in the 18th and 19th centuries and it's really a lens through which to focus on broader issues relating to country house life, how estates are managed, the roles that these individuals play in the, the countryside, but also things like domestic employment, the gardens and grounds. It's a whole range of material there. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. That was Professor Chris Woolgar of Southampton University. There's an exhibition, Everybody is in Admiration of It, Broadlands, a Country House in Hampshire, which runs until Friday the 30th of March in the Special Collections Gallery at Hartley Library at the University of Southampton. 
That exhibition is open from 10 to 4pm, Monday to Friday. Admission is free. You may be asked for proof of identity by reception staff. You can read more about the archive online at broadlandsarchives.com. If you want to see a bit more about the Broadlands Archive, check out a slideshow of images and documents on our website at historyextra.com forward slash broadlands. Our next interview is with Professor Mark Greengrass, co-director of a major project on Fox's Book of Martyrs. John Fox's 16th century work, published in several different editions, was an important milestone in the development of Protestantism in England, as well as an impressive publishing achievement. BBC History Magazine's Rob Attar caught up with Professor Greengrass recently to discover more about the book's creation and to find out why it had such an enduring legacy. Who exactly was John Fox? John Fox was a scholar and teacher uh, in the 16th century, uh, in, involved in the Reformation, the early processes of Reformation in England, but also on the continent. Uh, and his uh, claim to fame, his enduring uh, legacy, was his Book of Martyrs. But in fact, he uh, undertook a much wider range of publications, of which we really only now concentrate on the Book of Martyrs. So the Book of Martyrs is what we all know John Fox for. Who were these martyrs that he was talking about? The processes of Reformation in England and on the continent were divisive and uh, battle uh, prone. Uh, and the martyrs were those uh, who were caught up in processes of prosecution and repression of what was seen by the traditional church and its supporters, that's to say uh, governments and governmental agencies, as we would now call them, um, it, as um, not just heretics, but seditious and um, dangerous enemies, both of the truth and of the stability of the state. So uh, the martyrs uh, were, uh, as Fox presents them, not merely figures of um, uh, representatives of an enduring God's truth, but also a symbol of what um, uh, needed to be recovered from a world which had been good, pure, uh, and which had become progressively decadent and corrupt. So for him, they were not, they were a symbol of a truth and a symbol of a world which needed to be changed. And the more recent Marcy talked about, they were largely Protestant, is that right? That's right, but of course here was a problem for Fox, and one of the uh, main objectives, one of the major objectives of um, the work of the project about which we'll say something mm. I hope a little bit more, uh, has been to recover the um, tensions between the material that Fox so diligently collected about these individuals, their lives, and in particular about their own statements for what they thought they were dying for. Those for him were mm. critical, those were the testimonies of truth. Um, and the fact that some of them were dying for what he would have regarded as not entirely orthodox truth. Uh, and so there is a subtle process of selection, of adaptation, of omission in what he presents within the published work. And because Fox, uh, uniquely among the Protestant European martyrologists, as we call them, those mm. who produce these martyr, uh, martyrologies, um, uh, we have the manuscripts, some of the manuscripts. Uh, we can see 
how he does this process of gentle doctoring. So what was the reaction to this at the time? Because people must have realised that these events were quite recent, that what he was saying wasn't always true. Well, they were recent, um, but uh, in the circumstances of the publication of his first edition, which is in 1563, through to during a 20-year period, successive re-editions and republications, where he elaborates finding new material integrated into this huge book. One has to emphasise how uh, massive uh, a publishing project, how massive a research enterprise, it was. And um, uh, as that material was integrated, so I think those people who might have remembered um, that the thing had been, truth had been different or that the circumstances might have been uh, other than he painted them, were not prepared to come forward and say, because under Elizabeth's regime, a Protestant regime still finding its feet in 1563, it, to have destabilised that emerging picture of truth would have really been quite a dangerous exercise. And what was the reaction of the Tudor state to what John Fox was doing? Well, the t- Tudor state was Im- implicated in it right from the start. Mm. Um, Fox himself uh, w- was uh, quite close to uh, William Cecil, uh, Elizabeth the I's uh, long-serving Secretary of State, and... Um, uh, William Cecil, but also uh, the uh, f- her first Archbishop of Canterbury, um, served as discreet patrons, channels uh, of favour, uh, people who Fox could count on, uh, and his publisher too could count on. And what was the impact of Fox's Book of Martyrs when it was published in the 16th century? Um, that's one of the major uh, objectives of the uh, research over the past um, two decades, really. Mm. How, how do we evaluate the uh, impact of a, of a book like this? We used to think that there was a copy of Fox in every parish church, um, that uh, it was widely available um, throughout the, uh, the country. I think we, it's now clear that uh, although there were injunctions uh, in, the, uh, fif- in, in the early 1570s uh, that um, copies should certainly be available in uh, significant churches um, in the country, it wasn't in every parish by any means. Mm. This was a very expensive book. On the other hand, there were clearly were um, efforts to make sure that it was uh, uh, bought by and or presentation copies given to significant figures in the Tudor establishment um, and it was a work which certainly had a major impact abroad um, because the materials in it not only drew from Protestant martyrologists but also contributed in turn to their works when they were re-edited. Um, very often, works are known about, not because people have read them, but because they've read about them. And I think that's one of the key processes of osmosis, by which Fox becomes not just a, a book, uh, not just an author, but an establishment. And what was it about Fox's work that, that made it something that people were all talking about? Well, uh, the first uh, component of that um, has to be the nature of the book itself. Mm. Um, When you uh, look at it even now, one of the most striking 
uh, features of it is the extraordinary um, uh, detail and efforts in the woodcut um, illustrations, uh, which are um, scattered throughout the book rather irregularly, but mm. concentrating on the martyr narratives and illustrating uh, of them. A lot of our work, and that of um, uh, associate scholars, has been devoted to understanding the processes of their production, which are extremely complicated, um, not least because these were uh, blocks that were um, produced um, uh, from details in the text, with uh, sections left out for filling in for the text to be incorporated within the illustration. Uh, sometimes the text had to be moved around so that the illustration fitted in. Some of them are really huge illustrations which have to be folded to get into the text. And by the gruesome nature of some of them, they are melodramatic, they are in-your-face pictures, yeah. which in some of those presentation copies that I mentioned uh, were hand-illustrated, hand-coloured, so they were not just um, uh, melodramatic, but also polychromatic. They were in-your-face, surrealistic almost, uh, in their uh, colourful detail. And what do you see as a long-term legacy of Fox's Book of Martyrs? The um, long-term impact of uh, this extraordinary book um, is often, has often been presented as presenting a kind of, as cementing a certain kind of Englishness. Um, and that Englishness uh, used to be associated with a sense of England as a godly nation. Mm. Um, that Fox presented a picture of Protestantism being a part of a divine plan in which the English were a favoured uh, people like the Hebrews. Um, within the modern world. I think we're now aware that the picture is more complicated than that, um, partly because Fox was by no means a little Englander. He was uh, in touch with European scholars. He saw the Protestant movement as a European one. Significant parts of the book are devoted to uh, Luther and to continental martyrs. Uh, and he spent um, uh, several years of his life in exile, um, so he knew the continent of Europe very well. This is not a little England that's yeah. writing. Um, but in a more complex sort of way, um, uh, Fox's book became, in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, um, used within domestic religious uh, uh, agendas and quarrels, so that it gradually assumed the picture of being an English text for an English nation about a unique English event, the English Reformation. So it gradually acquired that patina, even though Fox hadn't intended it uh, to be there. It is a text which people kept on going back to. And even in the early part of this century, there are many people who are alive still today for whom the memory is green of consulting this book uh, on parents' shelves and being taken aback by the, um, the strikingness of the illustrations, by the um, immediacy of the stories that it contains. And what have we now added to our understanding with the research project you've been working on? 
the first thing to say about the research project is that it um, has uh, it was started in 1992. Um, it was uh, sponsored by the British Academy. It's received significant uh, amounts of public funding from the um, Arts and Humanities uh, Research Council uh, and from other um, uh, bodies too, uh, for which we're e extremely grateful. It has brought together a significant group of scholars in this country and worldwide um, to pool their knowledge uh, and experience in order to, and this is the key thing I think that uh, the project has achieved, in order to show that Fox's book, first of all, was not um, uh, authored in the way that we would traditionally imagine a book to be authored. What Fox did was act as a, a great editor, a great compiler, bringing materials together, often from other places, um, and editing them down into shape creating a, a fabric around that. Secondly, um, it, it was a, uh, a work that was only possible through his publisher, John Day, and that Day and Fox have to be regarded in the same breath. And so uncovering how Day put together the finances to produce this work, how he um, cross-subsidized his um, other publishing, uh, his other publishing efforts being used to um, uh, subvention the um, publication of this work, uh, and how he fought off rivals from producing um, uh, uh, pirated copies of it. All this is part and parcel of the story of Fox's book. But then finally, um, this is not a stable text. There are four editions in Fox's lifetime, many, many others afterwards, uh, and um, the, each edition is substantially different. Um, so that you cannot regard any one of them as being Fox's Book of Martyrs. They are each of them Fox's Book of Martyrs, each produced for a specific time moment where Fox felt the, the stories had something to tell either about the dangers to Elizabeth's regime, the dangers of forgetting what had happened in the past, um, or the uh, answering of his numerous and very vocal Catholic critics, who in a way contributed um, to Fox's Book of Martyrs, if only by his having to answer their very pertinent, very telling criticisms that these weren't martyrs at all, that they were simply seditious individuals whom the state was absolutely right to punish um, because they were a danger and a threat to it. And finally, what um, outcomes have there been for the, for the project that the public can, can get to know Fox better through? Well, most significantly, there are, of course, inevitably a large number of, uh, of outcomes, uh, and some of them are still um, on the way. But the most important of them is the uh, website, which for the first time enables uh, anybody, it's public, uh, available without any subscription, um, to uh, uh, read the text, uh, to read essays and contributions from scholars about it uh, and to um, uh, compare one edition with another to understand, to really get a sense of um, how Fox changed the, the text. And that is at www.johnfoxalloneword.org. 
and that's available for everyone to use for free. That's available for everyone to use for free and to print out. Um, Fox would have been, I think, appreciative of that. For him, this was always not about him. It was about something, a truth, much wider than him. We're not presenting this as a kind of Protestant truth. This is a scholarly exercise in order to show that um, this uh, story was a complex one, that it evolved within the context of its period, um, and that within it we can learn so much about the productions of an enormous and still impressive 16th century text. Well, that was Professor Mark Greengrass. As he mentioned, you can browse the text of Fox's Book of Martyrs as well as read scholarly commentaries at johnfox.org. Mark has also co-written an article on the Book of Martyrs for BBC History Magazine's February 2012 edition. Right, our last interview is with Dr Oliver Crichton, who is Associate Professor in Archaeology at the University of Exeter. He specialises in the examination of historic landscapes. His most recent project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, is the investigation of a polite landscape around the grand country home of Poultymore House, just outside Exeter in Devon. The first question I asked him was, what exactly does he mean by a polite landscape? A polite landscape, I suppose it's a, a classic piece of sort of academic jargon. A polite landscape, to my mind, is, is a landscape of uh, pleasure, a landscape of leisure. It's a landscape that, that's designed um, with aesthetics in mind. It might include things like gardens and garden features and Parkland. It's a landscape that was designed and redesigned as, as changes in, in, in aesthetics developed over the centuries. And what, is, there a, is there a particular moment in time when design landscapes appear? When, when are the origins of design landscape in your terminology? Well, it's quite a controversial topic in many ways. Classically, design landscapes start off, I suppose, in the Tudor period in the 16th um, century. People often see the, the great palaces of Henry VIII as, being some, as having some of the earliest designed landscapes around them. I'd actually disagree. Um, I've done quite a lot of research that suggests in the, um, the Middle Ages, as far back as the Norman period, into the 11th and 12th centuries, I would argue that uh, lords, aristocrats, kings were, were designing um, the settings of their, their houses, their castles, um, in, in very complex ways. Um, that were partly for, for aesthetic purposes. So when we talk about design landscapes, who, what sort of people are responsible for them? Is, is it the lords of the manor, the, the gentry, the upper classes who create the design landscapes, or is it, um, is it across society? It all depends which way you look at it. Again, from a, from a traditional point of view, um, design landscapes are often seen as the, the domain of the, the social elite. They're laid out by, by the, the rich and the famous, the, the great and the good. Uh, and part of the reason I'm very interested in this project um, is that we're trying to turn things around a little bit, not, not just looking at polite landscapes and elite landscapes from a top-down perspective, we're trying to look at them from a bottom-up perspective, look at how um, members of the public, the peasantry, interfaced with and interacted with these elite areas. We're interested in things, for instance, like, like poaching. Um, we're interested in how the Lord of the Manor diverted um, roads around the parkland at Poltimore to, to, to give himself the best view from his house. So interested in that sort of interface, that interaction between the lords and the everyday people on okay. the ground. Okay, so talking Poltimore then, um, 
Where is it? What is it? Where is it? What is it? Poltermore House is just on the outskirts of Exeter. It's a couple of miles outside the city, northeast of Exeter. Um, lots of people will have seen it um, from the M5. Thousands and thousands of people drive past it every, every, every day. Um, and what is it? It's a country house. Mm -hmm. It was built as far as we can possibly tell. Um, in the Tudor period, in the 16th century, it probably replaced a medieval manor house uh, quite nearby. And it went through a series of alterations and redesigns in the 18th, 19th, 20, 20th century, right up to the, the present day. So it's a, a, a country house that's evolved um, through the centuries. And you're not so interested in the house itself, but the landscape around it. The house is very famous in Exeter because it made the final of a, of a BBC programme called Restoration. Yes, it did, yeah. Uh, very high profile because of that. We're not so much interested in the, the, the country house as how it interfaced uh, with its landscape, how it was set within its park, how it was set within gardens, and how the design um, of, the, of the parks and gardens reflected the changing um, architecture and planning of the house itself. Okay, so how, how do you go about researching that? What, what, what sort of methodology can you employ? It's a project that's trying to integrate archaeological and historical methodologies for investigating this landscape. I'm working with a colleague in history called Professor Henry French, who's leading the uh, documentary side of the research, uh, looking at documents, a whole range of historic maps, um, and the estate archives as far as we're able to get at them. On the other hand, we're using a, a great suite of archaeological methodologies most of them, I suppose, would come under the, the umbrella heading of, of non-destructive archaeology. People often think archaeology is all about digging. They see time team and they think, 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 all we do is, all we want to do is dig. It's not quite like that. We're using a range of methods that don't involve excavation. Things like geophysics, things like field walking, picking up pottery and other artefacts um, from the plough soil. We're carrying out a very detailed survey of all the trees. Um, in the Poltermore landscape. They're, they're, they're an important part of, of this designed setting. Where, where, where are the origins? How far back does, does, does Poltermore's story go? Well, we're interested in getting people to engage with the, the whole Poltermore story right the way back from prehistory through to the, the present day. So the Poltermore landscape is, is dotted with uh, prehistoric finds. Taking a crafty look at our, our geophysics results that have just come out. I, th I think there's some evidence of um, prehistoric and Roman activity um, buried beneath that parkland. But at the other end of the scale we have Cold War archaeology. There's a rather rare, rather interesting example of a Cold War bunker that was manned during the Cold War by the, by the Royal Observers Corps and we have a, a student and, and volunteers investigating that, if you like, slightly contentious, very neglected heritage of the Cold War. So it's prehistory right the way through to the Cold War. And everything in between. Okay, just talking about design landscapes in general then. So um, you, you say that you, you can see the history from the Tudor point certainly, perhaps even going back even further to medieval Norman times and on to today. How important are designed landscapes in the British landscape? Are they, you know, how much of an impact has, has design had on the landscape that we see today? I think it's had an incredible impact right the way through the centuries. Going back to the medieval period, there are sites as iconic as Windsor Castle that are still clearly embedded within landscapes that were laid out for reasons of pleasure, leisure, deer parks, gardens, and so on. Um, and we discussed earlier a little bit about the 
the, the, who, who might have been involved and responsible for these, and, and perhaps that it's not just about the great men of society, you know, foisting these landscapes on people. So how can we learn about the, the little people, um, to coin a <laughs> phrase? Uh, it's not coining a phrase, it's a very, very obvious phrase. But how can we le learn about people who aren't the lords of the manors through these design landscapes? We can investigate um, the settlements around um, the Parkland landscape at Poltimore. Um, you can look at the, the village of Poltimore and how that interacted and how the people um, within that village interacted with the estate. Through census records we can look at the number of people employed um, working on the gardens and in the elite landscape, how this changed um, through time. We can look at records. We've had a, a volunteer involved in the project producing a, a, a fantastic piece of work on, on poaching within the Poltimore landscape. Techniques of poaching, uh, records of prosecutions uh, because of poaching. So if you were, um, if, if you, you know, to be going out, out and about around the country looking at the landscape, are there, what sort of things would you expect to see when you're looking for design landscapes? Are there any particular features that you, that you would think, <laughs> ah right, so this, this is... Are you suggesting that, I, I guess the phrase design landscape can seem a little bit woolly, even a little bit nebulous. The features of a design landscape that you might spot on a typical walk around the English countryside, the obvious one is parkland. Parkland full of parkland oaks. If you're lucky, you may see the pale, the, the, the boundary feature of a park. Also things like avenues, avenues of lime trees. Um, often these serve to link different features of the landscape. At Baltimore, we've got a rather intriguing example where we have a, an avenue that's laid out to link the house of Baltimore and the village church. There's an av avenue linking the two of them sort of almost umbilically. Assuming that someone's interested in what you said about design landscapes and they want to see an example somewhere else around the country perhaps, any, any ideas about places where you can really get to grips with, with this concept? I couldn't possibly narrow it down to one example, but I'll give you two. Two examples at di different ends of the, the chronological spectrum, an early one and a late one. For an early one, how about a place like Bodium Castle? It's a 14th century castle. Many people think that the idea of a design landscape is much later. But I think if you go to Bodium Castle, you walk around the site, you look at the splendid moat, the way the architecture is reflected in that water, surely that's a, a medieval example of a design landscape. At the other end of the scale, I suppose my personal favourite would be the, the rather splendid landscape around Blenheim Palace. Which is, I think someone once described it as the, as the finest view in the world as you're approaching, approaching Blenheim Palace. And that's, that's, a, that's an enormous landscape, isn't it? Some, somewhere where you could, you know, you could spend days. Absolutely. And buried within it somewhere, I mean, rather, rather intriguingly, there is a medieval um, precursor to that landscape. There's a medieval palace buried beneath part of the, the Blenheim parkland with a series of gardens and very elaborate wa water gardens and water features that some th people think were inspired by Islamic influences. That was Oliver Crichton, who's a landscape archaeologist at the University of Exeter. You can read more on the Poltimore project at poltimore-landscapes.org.uk. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Next week, we will be exploring Britain's empire. Boobs History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Thank you once more for your time.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.